0: So I have to confess, I've always had a a little bit of a fuzzy relationship with the whole topic of leadership. From the time that I was first a pastor, I was around all kinds of people who were very clearly leaders, and so I thought I had in my mind a very clear picture of what a leader was. I just wasn't sure exactly where I fit in. But then on one fateful morning back in March of 2018, all of that became crystal clear when I did what evidently nearly all of you have done, I also took that Strengths Finder or Clifton Strengths Test. So, if you've taken the Clifton Strengths Test, you know that there are 34 total strengths that fall under four different domains executing, influencing, relationship building, and strategic thinking. So, if I were to ask you, which of those four domains do you think are especially important for leadership, what would you say? I would probably focus on two of them. First of all, Relationship building. Leading sort of presupposes that there are people to be led. And then second of all, influencing. John Maxwell actually said, leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. And I'm guessing you're aware that under that domain of influencing is the one strength that is perhaps most synonymous with dynamic, and charismatic leaders perhaps the one strength out of all 34 that leaders covet the most that's right i'm talking about woo there they are there they are i was going to ask for a show of hands but one thing i guess about people with you with woo is you don't even have to ask them <laughs> if they have woo they will just let you know so i decided i was going to take this test and for some reason i decided I was going to take it when I was down at this big church leader conference down in Orlando, Florida. So, as I looked around, I was surrounded by thousands of strong and dynamic leaders, including the handful of Wells pastors that I was there with. Everywhere I looked, there were people who were just dripping with woo, they had woo to spare. They had woo for days. They were oozing woo out of their every pore, and this is when I decided I was going to take this test, and here were the results. (laughs) Not a single strength in the domains of influencing or relationship building. All five of my top five in the other two domains out in the leadership darkness where there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth. (laughs) So as you can probably tell, this was kind of a traumatic experience for me. Uh, In fact, I I sort of over the years developed a picture of Don Clifton. He's the godfather of the Clifton Strengths test. I developed this picture of what he looked like in my head. (laughs) So here I was, taking this test, trying to find out that I had some leadership capability. And along comes Don Clifton, and he says, sorry, John Bauer, no woo for you. It was obviously much more than just a a single personality test that has formed my conception of my leadership gifts over the years, but I have concluded. I'm, I'm guessing you know that there are some leaders, probably some that you even know, that you would follow anywhere. Leaders that you would run through a brick wall for. Leaders that you would jump out of an airplane for. Leaders that you would follow absolutely anywhere. And I don't think I'm one of those kinds of leaders. I might be the kind of leader that you would follow, perhaps, into a nice restaurant. (laughs) If I told you that the food was really, really good, and if I volunteered to pick up the entire tab, then you might come with me. But thankfully, I eventually realized something. You see, I always thought that woo was just this made-up word, a word that referred to some sort of je ne sais quoi that every good leader possesses, but it's not. Did you know this? It's not just woo, it's actually woo. This trademarked term stands for something. And it stands for winning others over. Which is great because it raises a very important question, a question that perhaps even people like me can help answer. Winning others over to what? I mean, it's one thing to be really good at influencing people to go in a specific direction, but you still have to answer the question, where are you taking them? We might think about it this way. This conference that we're at brings two very important words together the words Lutheran and leadership. What happens when those two words come together? In other words, what does Lutheran leadership even mean? I know there's an entire keynote about this on Wednesday, and maybe they'll disagree with me, but if you ask me, Lutheran leadership does not mean that there is a Lutheran way to build relationships with people. It doesn't mean that there is a Lutheran way to influence those people, which is perfectly fine because there's also not a Lutheran way to solve a quadratic equation or a Lutheran way to play man-to-man defense. It is not Lutheran leadership, as if we are leading people in some trademarked Lutheran manner. No, instead, if you ask me, Lutheran leadership means leading people in a distinctively Lutheran direction. It means that the thoughts and the behaviors and the habits and the culture that you are trying to win people over to, the theology and practice, you might say, that we are trying to win people over to is, in fact, Lutheran. So then let me ask you this question. Of those two words, which do you think that our church body needs to improve at more? Why are we having this conference? Is it because we need to be better Lutherans? or because we need to be better leaders. If I were to stand up here and insinuate that the people in this room need to be better Lutherans, I'm guessing those would sound a little bit like fighting words. And so I'm not going to do that. But what I would like to win you over to today is this conviction. That if Lutheran leadership means leading people in a distinctively Lutheran direction, then now, today, our moment is a uniquely good time to be doing just that. I'm very much convinced that it is, and when I think about why I'm convinced that it is, I think about this picture. This is one of my favorite pictures in the world, not only because it is a lovely picture of my wife and me, but I also love this picture because of when it was taken. It was taken at a New Year's Eve slash 40th birthday party for a good friend of ours named Kristen. It was taken just before the last time we had a conference just like this. In other words, it was taken just as 2019 turned into 2020. (laughs) Dun-dun-dun. And I love looking at this picture because it is just fascinating for me to look into the eyes of two people, one of whom is myself, who have absolutely no idea about the freight train that is headed their way. I look at that version of myself and I want to say, oh, you poor thing you poor, poor thing, you have no idea what is headed your way. And yes, of course I mean the COVID-19 pandemic, but not just that. I mean all of the things that have happened in the last thousand days. You remember them, don't you? Of course you remember them. You were there too. What has happened in the last thousand days has presented challenge after challenge to anyone who would call themselves a leader. It's no doubt forced you to make some very difficult decisions. It's no doubt forced you to say a lot of prayers. It's no doubt brought a lot of criticism in your direction. But I'm also convinced that what's happened in the last thousand days has done us a tremendous favor. Why? Because it has accelerated a lot of things that previously had been happening very, very slowly in our world. And it has brought to light a lot of things that previously had been simmering just beneath the surface. It has made it painfully obvious that what our world needs most right now just so happens to be the very thing that we do best. I would like to try and make that painfully obvious to you, if it isn't already. I want you to hear some of the voices that have been perking up my Lutheran ears. Some of them are professional voices, sociologists and historians and journalists. Some of them are more popular voices, like comedians and talk show hosts and podcasters. Some of them are personal voices, people that I live among and serve. Most of them are not Lutheran voices, many of them are not even Christian voices, but all of them are giving voice to questions that Lutherans are uniquely capable of answering. All of them are identifying problems that Lutherans are uniquely capable of solving. You see, there are a lot of leaders in this world, but not all of them are Lutherans. And there are a lot of Lutherans in the world, and not all of them are leaders, but your presence in this room suggests that you are both. And as a Lutheran leader, you are equipped to meet the challenges of our moment in a way that very few others are interested in or capable of doing. As a Lutheran leader, you were made for our moment, and our moment was made for you. As a Lutheran leader, I want you to know that now is a good time to be doing what we do best. So part one, a moment to identify our number one obsession. An obsession with blank is the normal human condition. It is a feature of our evolutionary design, not a bug. Those words from sociologist Jonathan Haidt come from a book in which he makes the argument that we human beings are not the purely rational creatures that we often tell ourselves are. we are. Instead, we are governed by impulses that affect us at a far deeper level. And in the book he makes the case for the impulse, the obsession that belongs right at the very top of the list. How would you fill in the blank? I suppose one way we could answer that is by asking this question, what is that thing that no matter how much of it you have, it is still never enough? John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money is enough money? And he famously answered, just a little bit more. Evidently, America's wealthiest man ever still wasn't wealthy enough. And maybe there was a time when we would have thought that money is our number one obsession. In fact, you've probably heard that if you want to know why someone is doing what they are doing, you follow the money. But events of the past few years have made it clear that there's something else that belongs right at the top of the list. The obsession that Jonathan Haidt was talking about is righteousness. Righteousness. Righteousness is any external authoritative assessment that a person lives up to, measures up to, some accepted moral standard. And if you pay attention, it's pretty clear that money is the most, or I'm sorry, righteousness is the most valuable commodity in our world, even more valuable than money. In fact, an author by the name of Rob Henderson has coined a term for ideas and opinions and beliefs and stances that people have that essentially serve the same function as fur coats and diamond jewelry used to. He calls them luxury beliefs. They are status symbols. They convey status on the person who owns them, but not the status of wealth or success, instead the status of righteousness. I'm sure you're familiar by now with the term virtue signaling, But what's going on in our world is much more than just signaling. What's going on is full-blown character creation. People construct full-blown avatars, substitutes, stand-ins that represent the righteous people that they know they ought to be. If you pay attention, you'll hear this referred to by many different terms. I've heard it referred to as LARPing, which stands for live-action role-playing, as in a simulated medieval battle. I've heard it referred to as Kabuki theater, which is stylized Japanese dance-drama. I've heard it referred to as an ARG, an alternate reality game that all of us are playing where our characters compete within a scoring system that awards points and badges and levels. In fact, even our criticism of one another has sort of migrated over into this realm. It used to be that the mindless lemmings in our world who just listen to everything that they are told were referred to as the sheeple. But now, people, especially young people, I think, like to refer to them as NPCs, non-player characters, a term that's borrowed from the world of video gaming. But actually, my favorite term for it comes from podcaster Eric Weinstein. He likes to call it k which is a term borrowed from the world of professional wrestling. Whatever you call it, the concept is basically the same. Again, there's much more than signaling going on. People are putting on costumes. They are following stage directions. They are using props and they are reading according to scripts. There are words that you must say and words that you can't say. Recently when the cryptocurrency exchange FTX suddenly collapsed, Sam Bankman-Fried made his first public comments in a DM exchange with a reporter. And in that exchange, it was kind of interesting, he made what, at least I thought, was a very surprising biblical reference. He referred to this dumb game that we woke Westerners' play where we say all the right shibboleths, and so people like us." We'll have to forgive him for misspelling the word shibboleths. He was under a lot of pressure at that point, I think. (laughs) This play-acting, this character creation, can be entirely secular in nature. It can be very religious in nature. The point is the same. The righteousness that people are obsessed with is not just this abstract idea. It needs to be a concrete flesh and blood character. We need a narrative that explains the world that we live in and in which our characters are the righteous ones. Eric Weinstein uh, uh, summarizes the appeal of, again, what he calls k this way. He says, k gives us a process by which important endeavors transition from failed reality to successful fakery. Unfortunately, when it comes to our number one obsession, even the fakery doesn't work. Recently, I heard comedian Sarah Silverman refer to what she sees going on in our world as righteousness porn. Just like pornography, our obsession with righteousness never really delivers what it promises. In fact, the more we pursue it, the stronger the stronger our appetite for it grows. And so, as a result, any pursuit of righteousness apart from Christ can really only have one effect on people it can leave them completely and utterly exhausted. Like, for example, a man who lives down the street from me who happens to play in the same morning basketball game that I do. His official job title is that he is the chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer at the major healthcare system in the Madison area where he works. If you were to check out his social media pages, his bumper stickers, his yard signs, you would see that he is very well versed in the kinds of things that can earn someone righteousness these days. If righteousness really were a commodity, he would be a very wealthy man. Well, recently he had this bizarre health scare that actually almost killed him. And as he was recovering at home, he invited me to come over and talk to him. And in that conversation, he expressed just how frustrating, just how exhausting his job was. That no matter what group he was trying to support, no matter what cause he was trying to uphold, inevitably he would get an email from some disgruntled employee complaining that their cause, their group, was being ignored. In that same conversation he said, with tears streaming down his cheeks, he wondered out loud, how he could ever be certain whether or not he was worthy of God's love. Or, for example, last spring when I was teaching our public school confirmation students the lesson on closed communion. And I wanted to make the point that sometimes it is, in fact, the wise, the loving thing to do to be exclusive, to exclude people from something. And so I started out by saying, I'm guessing most of the time in your everyday life you hear that the right thing to do is to be inclusive. I was expecting simple agreement. What I didn't expect was the host of sighs and eye rolls that quickly went around the room. Not again, they were saying. Now, I should say that as far as I can tell, kids these days are so much nicer, so much kinder than we ever were. I mean, I could probably think of a handful of words That if I said them from this stage, this conference would end up on the local news in a way that John Hine does not want to see. (laughs) And when we were kids, people said them all the time. If the goal simply is to be kinder and nicer and more inclusive, it would seem to me that today we are light years ahead of where we used to be. But if the relentless drumbeat of any facet of morality is really to find a basis for our righteousness, then it will only leave people exhausted. Frustrated that no matter how much they've done, it's still never enough. So what do you suppose a room full of Lutherans can bring to a moment like ours? We all know where true righteousness can be found. I don't think that's up for debate at this conference. But perhaps over the years we have lost a sense of why that righteousness that is ours from God through faith in Jesus is so very relevant for people's lives. For several generations now, Wells pastors have been trained and have been training others to start spiritual conversations using the so-called Kennedy questions. If you were to die tonight, where would you go? If Jesus were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Certainly those are important questions. People need to know the answers. But I wonder if over time we've given the impression that there's really just one moment in time when people need to know where their righteousness comes from. When Jonathan Haidt says that an obsession with righteousness is the default normal human condition, he actually sounds an awful lot like some Lutherans who said, to be righteous is to be the human person God envisioned when he created us. In other words, this doctrine of righteousness is not just part of our soteriology, the doctrine of how we are saved. It is also part of our anthropology, the doctrine of who we are. And people, the very people that are sitting in our classrooms and in our pews, can know very well what they would say to God on the day they stand before him in judgment, and yet still find very enticing the righteousness that is offered to them day to day by a lot of people in a lot of places other than Jesus. In fact, if we really want to know why people are doing what they are doing, maybe even more than following the money, we ought to follow the righteousness. Now, in response to those Kennedy questions, several generations of Wells pastors have been trained and have been training others to share their faith using a very simple law gospel presentation called God's Great Exchange. God demands holiness. God sees sin. All of our sin gets transferred to Jesus. All of our holiness, all of Jesus' holiness, gets transferred to us. It doesn't get any simpler or clearer than that. But I wonder if over time we've developed this perception that the gospel is really nothing more than a series of propositional statements, a message that almost resembles a math formula. Of course, the gospel is a series of propositional statements that we need to stay crystal clear on, but in their obsession with righteousness, people are not writing math equations People are writing narratives, they are creating characters, and the gospel, of course, is that too. It is a narrative, and it is a character. In a world full of LARPing and Kabuki theater and ARGs and Kfob, the gospel offers us vicarious atonement. It offers us Jesus as the ultimate avatar, the perfectly righteous substitute and stand-in that all of us need. And it's really those two things brought together. The gospel as propositional statements and the gospel as narrative that truly has power in our world. Because one without the other won't do. In our area, the the mainline Protestant denominations that are, are part of our community tend to follow a church year and use a lectionary that's very similar to ours. And so it's interesting at times to listen to sermons that were preached on the same day and on the same text. A couple years back I was listening to a local sermon that was preached on John chapter 2, Jesus cleansing the temple for the second Sunday in Lent. Here was the outline for the sermon. Part one, Jesus was the perfect son of God and here was this time when he got really angry. So point two, obviously it is okay for us to get angry too. In fact, here are some things that are going on in our world that God would want you to be angry about. Part three, in his anger, Jesus took action. And when Jesus took action, things changed and things got better. And so part four, if you and I team up with Jesus, and in our, action, or in, in our anger, we too take action, we can make the world a better place. The story was there, same exact story that I preached on that morning. But the propositional statements, the law gospel lens to help us see that story correctly was completely missing. It can go the other way, too, of course. The evangelical churches in our area tend not to follow a church year or use a lectionary. I've listened to the sermons of one preacher in particular several times, and they all seem to follow the same basic pattern. They start out with what I would describe as a three-minute mini-devotion on Romans chapter 3. All have sinned. All deserve God's punishment. The only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus as your Savior. And then what follows is about 45 minutes of marriage advice from Song of Songs or leadership lessons from Nehemiah or parenting tips from Proverbs. So the propositional statements are all there, just as clearly as if I were the one delivering them. But the narrative is missing. In fact, the narrative has been replaced. The narrative of Jesus, the narrative of the gospel, has been replaced by the narrative of personal self-improvement. We Lutherans are not the only ones, of course, to know where righteousness comes from, but we are the ones who refer to this as our first and chief article. How about that? Our number one obsession lines up so nicely with our first and chief article. What a blessing. That's a blessing that's important to remember, especially if your town is anything like mine, where there are churches that that basically now year-round have various Signs and flags and banners of many, many different colors that let everybody know where those churches stand on certain social issues. We might ask ourselves, what makes our church different from those churches? Is it because we have a a biblical position on marriage and family and gender? We certainly do. But even more than that, the difference is that we have a different first and chief article. I've asked our members a time or two if there were a counterpart flag, a flag that just perfectly captured everything that the Bible says about marriage and family and gender. Would we fly that flag in front of our church? We need to remember that the counterpart, the solution, to the false gospel of pride is not the equally false gospel of conservative family values. We have a different 1st and chief article. In fact, I I had to smile recently at something that I saw on Facebook. Here's that picture of our newly constructed church. There was a a sign company in town that helped build the steeple and the cross that went on top of the church, and after the project was complete, they posted a video of the installation. Now, I realize full well that putting a cross on top of your church is not some new and revolutionary idea. Just about every church in the world does it, but I couldn't help but smile at the comment. The person said, Wow, I know Jesus is a big deal, but in this church... He is enormous. Hopefully they would reach the same conclusion if they came inside and listened to a sermon. So what if ours is a moment where our number one obsession is clearly righteousness and people's pursuit of that righteousness apart from Christ is leaving them exhausted? It would seem that now is a good time to be doing what we do best. It was a Lutheran who said, the first and chief article is this, all have sinned and are justified freely without their own merits, by God's grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And another Lutheran added, it is the chief article for a reason. Not only is this the chief article on which the church stands or falls, but this is also the chief article on which individuals stand or fall. Frenetic lives of self-justification have rest in the salvation of Jesus Christ. All right, that's part one out of five. <laughs> it's okay, it's good, it's good for the first and chief article to be the longest. Things will pick up from here. Part two, a moment to do real good for real people. Utopianism lacks sophistication. It is the game of performers, not those who actually get things done for real people. These words come from a book by Columbia professor John McWhorter in which he makes the case that what he describes as third-wave anti-racism, and it's important to know exactly how he defines that, he makes the case that that is a new American religion. That's not at all a compliment coming from John McWhorter because he is no fan of religion. Perhaps his biggest complaint is, again, what he calls third-wave anti-racism, is that it doesn't do and it isn't concerned about real good for real people. In fact, in the book, he makes this comment that I think the people in will find interesting, especially today. He says, Drifting from a commitment to changing society toward a narrow commitment to signaling antipathy to racism, anti-racism's progress has taken it from the concrete political activism of Martin Luther King to the faith-based commitments of a Martin Luther. Now those are some fighting words that maybe we'll have to come back to. In all of the character creation that goes on in our world, I mentioned that people use props. Those props might be yard signs or bumper stickers or flags, but ultimately, at the end of the day, the props end up being people. Anytime the real reason for any virtuous cause, whatever it might be, John McWhorter picks on one, but it could be any. Anytime the real basis, the real reason for that cause is our own righteousness Whether or not people benefit becomes of secondary concern. In fact, some Lutherans have the very same criticism that John McWhorter does. Works done on the premise of becoming righteous before God are ultimately works done not for one's neighbor but for the glory and salvation of self. In the process, the neighbor either becomes instrumentalized as a means to an end or devalued as of little use. If you pay attention, people are starting to see through this. They're starting to take notice. Maybe you caught wind of what happened right before Christmas when the University of Stanford came out with this long list of words that they wanted to discourage people from using as part of their so-called elimination of harmful language initiative. I suppose one reaction to a list like that would be to sort of go through it line by line and just really fight out tooth and nail whether it's still okay to use words like brave, or prisoner, or cakewalk. I think a much more helpful critique came from podcasters Brett and Heather Weinstein. They first of all referred to the whole thing as a Sneeches on Beaches situation, where the entire point is to have a real easy and obvious way to separate the goodies from the baddies. But then they also asked this question, They said, if we stop calling it a walk-in appointment, because not everyone can walk, have we solved the problem? Has anyone really been helped by that? In fact, sometimes, helping people can actually be a liability to a cause instead of the whole point. When FTX collapsed, it also had an impact on what's known as the effective altruism movement. As the name suggests, effective altruism is interested in altruism that's effective in doing real good for real people. But Sam Bankman-Fried's behavior kind of cast a dark shadow over the whole thing. And so many involved in the movement felt the need to come to its defense, including podcaster Sam Harris, who said this, many charities are governed by perverse incentives. They can't afford to solve problems, the problem they are ostensibly committed to solving, because then they would go out of business. So what can a room full of Lutheran leaders bring to a moment like this? Well, once our number one obsession is addressed by our first and chief article, our attention is freed to focus on the needs of our neighbor. It doesn't matter if the need is small. It doesn't matter if no one is going to notice. It doesn't matter if it won't make even the slightest dent in any of the society-wide problems that are so often competing for our attention. You and I can be content even if we are just one individual pawn placed in just the right spot at just the right time by the one who is the king of the entire board. In fact, in a world where we can't sign on with every last popular cause of the day, we might actually have an advantage if we make sure our focus, our attention is on real good for real people. Speaking of causes, we also have a lens by which we can evaluate some of those causes that we might feel some pressure to sort of get on board with in our day. For the past several years, I've enjoyed showing our confirmation students this sign, which is a sign they see in yards all around our town. I show them the picture and I ask them what's wrong with this sign. Then I wait for a few minutes while they try and sort of decode it line by line, to figure out what it's trying to say and what might be contrary to what the Bible says. In other words, they assume that the devil is in the details. But then I step back and I ask them, let's just forget for a moment about whether or not we agree with everything that this sign says. Who is this for? If I were to put this sign out in my front yard, and what, a hundred, two hundred people, would ever see it, all of whom already have their minds made up about all of the issues that are raised, is there one real tangible way in which one person has benefited from that? And if not, who is it for? And of course, we better ask, we need to ask the very same questions, even if the sign were to say, unborn lives matter, or scientism isn't real, or truth is everything. In contrast to morality by yard sign, when I think of real good for real people, I think of this wonderful Christian woman that I know. She does a little bit of after-school tutoring for students out of her home every day. This woman also happens to have a son who a few years back came out as gay and is now in a relationship with a man who up until that point had been married to a woman and had a couple of children with her. And so now this wonderful Christian woman that I know has to first of all deal with all of the the heartache of that situation but then also navigate those, those treacherous waters of trying to love just like Christ would both her son and all of the new people that are in her life as a result of her son's relationship. I'm not sure how she threads that needle each and every time but I do know what I happened to find out a while back and only because I put together the pieces on my own she would have never told anyone that among the students that she tutors at her house is the 12-year-old daughter of the man that her husband is in a, or her son is in a relationship with. There she is when no one is around, when no one is looking, when no one is there to give her a pat on the back, using the gifts that God has given her to benefit a real, live human being. Whatever else you might say about it, it is very clearly real good for a real person. The kind of thing you can't accomplish with a yard sign. In fact, the kind of thing that she probably wouldn't be able to accomplish if she had a yard sign that shared with her neighbors her moral convictions. So what if ours is a moment when people are starting to see through all of the pointless posturing that goes on and what they're looking for is actually real good for real people? It would seem that now is a good time for us to be doing what we do best. In fact, John McWhorter probably thought he had a real zinger when he compared Martin Luther King with Martin Luther, but he's probably more on the same page with both of them than he realizes. It was some Lutherans who said, Our teachers have taught well what is pleasing to God in every station in life. Before now, preachers taught very little about these things. They encouraged only childish and needless works. Now we're cooking. Part three. A moment to build institutional trust. As different institutions come to be seen as platforms displaying individuals, they also come to lose their distinctions from one another and so tend to become interchangeable stages for the same sorts of cultural, political performances. In this way, a culture at war with itself comes to be at war everywhere, everyone, is participating in the same obnoxious quarrel. Those words from Yuval Levin are from a book in which he tries to examine why institutional trust, everywhere, from universities, to journalism, to public medicine, to academia, why institutional trust seems to be at an all-time low. He identifies the root cause, as the fact that people within those institutions view their positions as platforms for performances instead of molds to be formed by. And if people are looking for performances, then the last thousand days have certainly provided them with many opportunities. Going all the way back to the very start of the pandemic, there was, there was that whole thing. In May of 2020, the death of George Floyd and the turbulent summer that followed, mask mandates, school shutdowns, a very contentious 2020 election and the turmoil that followed that, including the riot on the Capitol on January 6th, vaccine rollouts, vaccine mandates, the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Each one of those seemed to be one more thing that everyone wanted to talk about, and so if you had any sort of microphone and any sort of stage at a moment like that, it would be real easy to think that if you wanted to be relevant, you needed to join the conversation. I'm sure you noticed that just about everyone did. On a societal level, we might think of professional sports leagues, like the NFL and the NBA. If you turned on ESPN at any point in the last three years, you might have been just as likely to hear about anything other than sports than you heard about sports. And ESPN's parent company, Disney, also seemed equally uninterested in providing entertainment anymore. Maybe you witnessed this same thing on a much more local level in your community. In our community, people tend to really want to support local businesses, most of the time because those business owners live in and are part of our communities. For the life of me, I cannot figure out why a business owner would want to risk alienating about 50% of his client base by telling them how to vote, or even specifically whom to vote for. Institutional trust is going to take a hit anytime people make a mistake in that organization. And I realize that, that a lot of these are leaning in sort of the same direction, but you can even sense the frustration from people who tend to lean in that same direction. Again, institutional trust is going to take a little bit of a hit when people in those institutions make mistakes at their jobs. But institutional trust is destroyed when the people in those institutions demonstrate that they have no idea what their field of operation is and or no interest in actually staying in it. So what do you suppose we Lutherans could bring to a moment like this? Well, maybe if you've ever turned on a football game because you wanted to watch a football game, or you've gone out to eat at a restaurant because you wanted to eat at a restaurant, or you've watched a movie because you've wanted to watch a movie, and instead you've found yourself, once again, part of that same obnoxious quarrel. Maybe where we can start is by making sure that no one would ever go to church because they want to go to church, and instead find themselves part of that same quarrel. If we do that, we have very good theological reasons supporting us. We know the nature of the kingdom that we operate in. We know its jurisdiction. We know its mission. We know the means by which that mission is carried out. We also know that Christ rules over a different kingdom, a kingdom that has a different mission, a different jurisdiction, and different means for carrying that mission out. We might also have very good practical reasons for doing so. If we stay in our lane, we might quickly find out that we're the only church in our area who's actually in that lane. I mentioned those churches that, throughout the year, fly colors of, of, or flags of various colors, letting everybody know where they stand on certain issues. There is very much an equally opposite ugly side to this. For every person that you think you might be proving yourself relevant to by talking about whatever happens to be trending on Twitter, for every member who might actually ask you to address what's trending on Twitter, rest assured that there is someone who just wants one place that they can go where they aren't talking about what's trending on Twitter. And that doesn't mean that we can't talk about difficult topics, but at the very least, we ought to recognize that when we do, the obligations of our position are a little bit different than they are of, say, Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow. So what if this is a moment where people are getting a little bit sick of finding the same obnoxious quarrel everywhere that they go? What if this is a moment where maybe the best way to rebuild institutional trust is to demonstrate that we don't view our positions as platforms. It would seem now is a good time to be doing what we do best. It was some Lutherans who said, The power of the church and the civil power must not be confounded. The power of the church has its own commission to teach the gospel and to administer the sacraments. Let it not break into the office of another. Part four, a moment to embrace embodiment. Their desire is rooted in misanthropy, meat space, yuck. The world as we know it, the thinking goes, is a place of death and decay, where mind, the true essence of the human, is subordinate to the flesh. Their goal is to liberate the mind from its bodily trappings. That word meat space is what's known as a retronym, It's a a new term that is invented for something old because the old term needed clarification because of some new development. So incandescent light bulbs used to just be light bulbs. And snail mail used to just be mail. And meat space used to just be real life. This rebellion against meatspace and this disgust for meatspace that Nicholas Carr was writing about, I'm guessing that you've dealt with it in your ministry, maybe especially in the last three years. For example, you've probably had to deal with this increasingly prevalent idea that a person's biological sex and their gender identity are different things. You've probably had to have delicate but difficult conversations about people and even with people who struggle with that issue. I'm guessing that you've also had to deal with the whole question of how the church should carry out its work in a pandemic and post-pandemic world, at a time where a seemingly endless number of retronyms are springing up, where it seems like every activity that we do needs to be either clarified as online or in person. I'm guessing that your churches and your schools opened their doors and kept those doors open as much as they possibly could in the last three years. But maybe you noticed what I noticed. That people were not so eager to come running back through those doors. And I suppose it's just a coincidence. But those two very different challenges, seemingly different challenges, that I'm guessing all of you have had to deal with are very much related to one another. I suppose it's just a coincidence, but actually the same prefix is associated with them both. In one case it happens to be in Latin, in the other case it happens to be in Greek, but in both cases it means to go across or beyond, to traverse some boundary. In this case, the boundary of the body. And in case you were wondering, what Nicholas Carr was writing about had nothing to do with gender reassignment surgery or hormone therapy. Instead, he was talking about VR goggles and augmented reality. In other words, it had nothing to do with anything trans, but everything to do with meta. What should the church make of all things online? Is it a reformation? Is it a revolution? Are these tools to us what the printing press was to Martin Luther, as sometimes has been suggested? There are certainly, of course, people who think so. Long before there was ever a thing called COVID-19, Judah Smith, who was once Justin Bieber's pastor, proudly said about his church, we have a new location and that location is everywhere. Influential thought leaders within the Christian world are telling people that if we want to continue to grow, if we want to continue to reach people, then online is where we need to be. Now, most of them will still say that in-person gatherings are preferred, but it's kind of interesting that they never really seem to have a concrete reason for that. After the pandemic, some won't even go so far as to say that. Andy Stanley likes to say that gathering in person is not the church's mission. Instead, it's just a model for carrying out that mission. And then he likes to add, you marry the mission, you only date the model. Ha ha ha. Some would go so far as to suggest that new church plants in our world should never consist of brick-and-mortar buildings. Instead, they should just be video recording studios. The logic sometimes goes like this. Why spend millions to reach thousands when you can spend thousands to reach millions? Now, that logic seems unassailable. But unfortunately, the logic is running into a brick wall called reality the reality of what all of this disembodied living is doing to us. If you pay attention, you will hear people compare what our online interactions do to us to what a drug-induced high does to real joy, or to what a stop at a fast-food restaurant does for real hunger. It simulates the thing that you are after. It certainly keeps you coming back for more and more, faster and faster, but all the while it is keeping you from ever having the real thing. The popular Netflix documentary, Social Dilemma, did a lot to raise awareness about this, including introducing the idea that in the world of social media, users are not customers, they are the product. The customers are the advertisers that actually pay money to these companies and what they are buying with their money is you, specifically your attention. Recently I read someone who took this just one step farther. He said, really, users are not the customers or the product, instead they are the fuel. Each one of us is like a log that's thrown onto the fire that keeps this immensely profitable and powerful machine running, used up without mercy. That article that I quoted from Nicholas Carr, he wrote shortly after Facebook's big October 2001 meta-announcement. And in that same article, he said this, It is now widely accepted that Facebook has been a calamity for the world. Most people would assume that the obvious solution is to get rid of Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg has a different solution. Get rid of the world. We'll see, I suppose but I think we can say that there is a special level of ignominy reserved for people in power who keep pushing people down a certain direction even after that direction has proven to be harmful to them. We here in the church did not invent these platforms. We are not the engineers of our online living, but we do get to decide how we are going to use these platforms. We get to decide whether what is evidently good enough for UW-Whitewater is good enough for us. We get to decide what our vision of a full, rich, robust relationship with Christ and His people really looks like. We get to decide whether we are going to engage with people in this space in a way that drives them deeper into that space or in a way that maybe rescues them out of that space. I mean, I think you'd agree that, that right now, at least, it wouldn't be a good thing for you to say to the parents of all of your teenagers, hey, if your kid doesn't have TikTok on his phone, we want them to download that app and get signed up because we want to start engaging with them there in that space. Well, maybe in the same way, what people need from the church right now is not just one more organization who is going to treat people like logs posting whatever will fuel engagement, regardless if it has anything to do with the church's work. What do you suppose a roomful of Lutherans can bring to a moment like ours? Well, it's worth mentioning that if we sort of try to swim upstream, if we push for things to be more personal, more embodied instead of less, we might not be in the majority, but we certainly won't be alone. For every voice that is pushing for all things online, there is a voice that is pushing in the opposite direction. The names probably aren't as big, neither are the book deals or the podcast audiences, but they're out there. But what's interesting to note is that just as those who are pushing for online but are still willing to grant that in-person is preferable can't seem to really articulate why, those who are pushing for more personal have their reasons But their reasons always fall just shy of being Lutheran reasons. You'll hear what we might call first article truths about how God the Father created human beings with both a body and a spirit, and those bodies are important for everything that we do. You will hear what we might call second article truths, how God the Son took on a human body and used that human body to redeem people in their bodies. But it's really the third article truths that make us distinct as Lutherans, how God the Holy Spirit also sanctifies people bodily. God's grace is delivered to us, not just as content. It's not data. God brings his grace to us by using human bodies in service to other human bodies. And every single one of those bodies has a different face on it that receives God's grace and reflects God's grace in a slightly different way. Andy Stanley was partially right when he said that gathering together in person is not the mission of the church. It's not. But it's also not a model that we can date for a while and then choose to dump at some later date. Instead, gathering together around the gospel is the essence of the church. It just is what the church is and without which the church is not. So maybe what the world needs from us right now is not just a church body that's bound and determined to keep their doors open or to do things exactly like we did them in 2019. I mean, what if the reason that so many people were so quick to stay at home for so long just passively consuming our content Evidently, perfectly fine with the fact that they would never have any sort of interaction with anyone from their church family. What if the reason for that was because they had been doing that exact thing for years prior while they just so happened to be coming to church? What if we made sure that we treated our congregations not as audiences who are there to consume what a few talented professionals up front are producing? but instead made sure that we were treating them, as one author put it, as the cast of a Broadway musical. Every last person having a role in the gospel drama that unfolds that morning. Everyone having a part, everyone knowing their part. What if we didn't just say to the teenager who is convinced that she is gender non-binary, that her body actually matters, but we treated her and everyone else for that matter, as if their body matters when we gather as a church family? What if instead of trying to repackage the sermons that pastors with huge online followings have, what if instead of leading our worship services by streaming YouTube recordings of Getty Hymns as actually performed by Kristen Getty, we instead did everything that we could to double down on the talent that's in the room. Yes, perhaps the slightly inferior talent, but the fully embodied and fully authentic talent. I mean, it sounds all fine and good to say, why spend millions to reach thousands when you can spend thousands to reach millions? But here's a news flash. If our church body is going to start 100 new churches in the next 10 years, the millions that they are going to be spending is not on brick and mortar. It's on flesh and blood. And so if all we really need are video recording studios, then all we really need is one. And the rest of us, preachers at least, are going to find ourselves out of a job. What if our churches became these increasingly rare places in our world where people weren't just algorithmically shuffled into identity groups and echo chambers, but instead where real people with real differences were forced to live with one another and learn from one another and love one another. During the pandemic, I had two families from my church who informed me that this no longer really felt like their church home and they weren't planning on attending anymore because of opinions about the pandemic that they had seen from other members of the church. It's kind of interesting, one family was concerned that others seemed to be taking the pandemic too seriously, and the others seemed to think that others weren't taking the pandemic seriously enough. But what's even more interesting is that in both cases, the families had only seen those opinions posted online. In other words, they had decided that they could no longer be in the same room as these people after not having been in the same room as these people. And so at first, my reaction was to say, boy, I wish just everyone would stop posting their opinions about the pandemic online. But then I realized that plenty of others of us had experienced the same difference of opinion, only we had experienced that difference in person. When you can work those things out, when you can get over those things instead of letting it lead to division. I mentioned before that the the Types of people who are pushing for more personal, more embodied forms of ministry. Include some names that that maybe aren't as big as some of the others, but there's at least one whopper on the list. A name that's far bigger, who has sold far more books and has a far bigger podcast audience than any of the other influential Christian thought leaders. Best-selling author, sorry, there we go, there he is. Malcolm Gladwell was a guest on a church leadership podcast that I sometimes listen to. Not the usual source of advice for church leadership advice that you might go to. But at the end of the episode, the host asked Gladwell this completely open-ended question. He said, If you could give one piece of advice, any piece of advice to church leaders, what would it be? And his response was, You need to gather in person. Honestly, before this, I didn't even know that Malcolm Gladwell was a Christian. Evidently, he's a confessional Lutheran. Who knew? He's not really, but that'd be pretty sweet, right? (laughs) So what if ours is a moment where people are starting to realize that our rebellion against meatspace is ruining us? And what if ours is a moment where people don't need us to add the words online, at least in front of certain important words, like community and fellowship and worship? Because when that word is added, those other words completely lose their meaning. It would seem that now is a good time for us to be doing what we do best. Some Lutherans said the church is the congregation of saints in which the gospel is purely taught and the sacraments correctly administered. All right, last but not least, a moment to face our finitude. This is what might be termed the paradox of limitation. The more you try to manage your time with the goal of achieving total control and freedom from the inevitable constraints of being human, the more stressful, empty, and frustrating life gets. But the more you confront the facts of finitude and work with them rather than against them, the more productive, meaningful, and joyful life becomes. So ever since the Tower of Babel, What happened at Babel, a certain cycle that happened at Babel seems to be repeating itself. God's intervention at Babel didn't prevent human beings from forming groups to work together using technology and ingenuity to try to build both literal and figurative towers as monuments to themselves. In fact, anytime a new innovation comes along, it seems as though someone says, now finally we are going to reach the heavens. But usually what follows that sky-high optimism is disastrous ruin. At some point, every tower topples. You could certainly understand the optimism about our moment. All the way back in 1983, Billy Graham said, in a single telecast, I preached to millions more than Christ did in his lifetime. Fast forward 40 years to 2023, and you don't have to be America's pastor to be excited about the tools we have at our disposal to reach people with the gospel. You don't even need to be Justin Bieber's pastor for your church to have a new location, a location that is everywhere. But if you pay attention, you will find people who are convinced that this latest tower has already started toppling. In fact, back in May of 2022, Jonathan Haidt wrote an essay in which he used the Tower of Babel as a a metaphor and his contention is that this latest tower that we have built reached its high point in 2010 and it has been crumbling ever since. Why 2010? Well, that is about the time that Facebook introduced the like button and Twitter introduced the retweet button and both of those features changed the very nature of those platforms. They changed them from places where connection can happen to places where performances take place. Because performance and connection really don't mix. Those features also brought about the birth of the mob and the fear that the mob can elicit in us all. In fact, the software engineer who designed the retweet button at Twitter said shortly after it was released, we may have just handed a four-year-old a loaded weapon. So Jonathan Haidt thinks that the tower has been toppling since 2010. In fact, he's even taken it a step farther than that. Last year, he appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And he testified that what social media has unleashed on our world, especially among young people, can be described as hockey sticks. The lines that measure poor mental, social, psychological health almost all look like hockey sticks a long period of relative stability, followed by a very sharp increase in the last decade. And so not only has this latest tower not helped us reach the heavens, but evidently what it has unleashed might be described as H-E double. I had to have at least one groaner, otherwise my children would have been really, really upset with me about that. So my apologies. But what do you suppose a room full of Lutherans could bring to a moment like this. I don't think that the solution is for us to just swear off any tools that we have or any tools that we might have as if using them would undermine our confidence in the means of grace. In fact, to some degree, this cycle of optimism followed by ruin, this cycle is inevitable and perhaps even necessary. You see, total and complete confidence in God tends to live on the far side of total despair of yourself, and you can't really despair of yourself until you've actually applied yourself. For example, you gain a whole new appreciation for the fact that all of your best efforts to be holy are in vain after you've actually attempted to be holy. If you just resign yourself to sin, then Jesus' work for you will seem like a much smaller and less significant thing. In the same way, total confidence that only God's power can grow his church tends to live on the other side of us trying to use our power to grow the church. If we just do nothing, and we use nothing, and we try nothing, then we can't sit back and say it's because we just trust God so much that he's going to grow the church by himself. What we can do, however, is know and enjoy knowing that human human ingenuity has a very hard limit. In fact, we can enjoy running into that limit, knowing that it's on the other side of that limit that all of the really fun stuff takes place. That's where the magic happens. As people continue to build their towers, we can expect to continue to see that God is going to accomplish more in our world when those towers crumble, far more than when they are constructed. I don't want to be misunderstood as I I talk about some of the tools at our disposal. I am by no means a social media expert. I'm certainly glad there are others who are at this conference who are and who are presenting on those things. But make no mistake, we, we use those things at our church. We post on Facebook and Instagram a couple times a week. We live stream our services. We have a, a YouTube channel. But without thinking twice, I would tell you that all of the most amazing things that have happened in my ministry had very little to do with any of that. And had everything to do with the kinds of things that only God can do. For example, I'd tell you about Ruth a 93-year-old lady who was the very first prospect that I ever had on my list when I took the call to start the church in Mount Horb. In fact, I had her name before I even arrived. You see, many, many years ago, Ruth's daughter married a Wells boy from the Twin Cities, and they established a life together there. 25 years later, his church body decided to start a mission congregation in Ruth's hometown. And the boy's mom, decided to email me her name. Now, Ruth doesn't have a computer, she doesn't have social media, she didn't have a cell phone. I don't think she's ever written an email in her life. But of course, she was in the phone book, which meant that I could look her up and go visit her at her address. Five short years later, she became a member of our church. Now I think we've got eight members who are part of our church and another dozen prospects who are regularly attending all because of her. Or I would probably tell you the real story of that neighbor of mine who invited me to come over and talk to him after he had that health scare. Yes, I play morning basketball with him, but the real reason I got invited over was because a couple of Wells folks from Illinois moved up to our area. And the house that they were building in our area took so unbelievably long that they had to find a farmhouse in the area to rent. And the farmhouse that they were renting happened to be on the very same property where my neighbor, keeps the cattle that he has as part of a side meat business that he and his wife operate. And they got to know each other, which is why I got invited over. Or maybe i tell you about a, an old man by the name of Elmer, who I never met, but who started attending a Wells church about two and a half hours from mine because he wasn't happy with the direction that his church was attending, was, was going He never became a member before he died, but after he died, his wife did, and three of his daughters and their families. And now a mother and her three children are members at my church because she's related to all of them, and they told her, this is the church that you need to go to. It is so very easy for us to think that the connections that we make are fast and reliable and easy to scale up And it is so easy to think that the connections that only God can make are slow, random, and unpredictable. Until you've seen God make those connections over and over again. And knowing that, knowing that that all of the really good stuff, all of the magic happens on the far side of our limits, I think also helps us think about and talk about in the right way what's on the near side of our limits. In other words, we might say, what is within the domain of our strengths? Since there's only so much time for you to boo me off the stage, let me give you a quick example. I understand why people take the Clifton Strengths Test. I did. I understand why our church body asks for our five top strengths that they use in that little profile that gets put out on call lists. I even understand why I get emails where people's five strengths are listed in their email signature. I really do. But at the same time, I would just love it if someday I would get an email where someone goes all Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 11, on the whole thing. In other words, they wrote an email and then at the bottom it said this, or something like this. Please put up with just a little bit of foolishness because so many others are talking in this way. I am going to talk this way too. Here they are my top five strengths. But don't think for a second that I think this is where the magic happens. If you and I are going to have any sort of positive interaction, anything good is going to come of this, don't think that I think that this is where it will be. In fact, in all likelihood, it will be outside of those strengths in a completely different domain. Because God's grace and God's power are made perfect. Not in my strengths, but in my weaknesses. That's a really long email signature, but like I said, it would would just make my day to get an email like that. In fact, I think probably the most magic I've ever seen in ministry came well beyond the domain of my strengths. It was one of those moments that you replay in your head a thousand times over and over again, dying of embarrassment every single time that you do. A good friend of ours named Kristen, who had the the 40th birthday slash New Year's Eve party, she and her husband and this entire circle of friends that they have were over at our place one Halloween before the kids were all going to go out trick-or-treating. And at one point in the afternoon, I thought it would be a, a wonderful idea to introduce all of these friends of ours to our vicar and his wife, who were new to the area at the time. And for reasons that I still cannot explain, as I went around the room, I completely blanked on the names of several people, including one of my wife's best friends, whose family doesn't go to church, and who my wife had been working on patiently for several years. I forgot her name in front of a room full of people, including my vicar. What a clueless and less idiot I was. Well, a lot has happened in the 15 months that that, uh, have passed since then. The following year, Kristen's dad got sick, which allowed me to have a a lot of time to spend with him and his wife and the rest of their family, sharing the gospel, praying, singing hymns together. When he passed away this past fall, they invited me to lead the graveside service. And so I had the opportunity to stand there and preach the gospel to everybody that was there, including this really good friend, Of my wife's. In fact, it was almost a year to the day since I had forgotten her name. And then this past Christmas Eve, our very first service in our new church, she and her family attended for the very first time. So we'll see, right? The point is, in this land, in the land of weakness and embarrassment and idiocy and incompetence, and sickness, and sadness, and death. This, the land far beyond our limits. My own wasteland of wooelessness is not a place for weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is where the magic happens. So what if ours is a moment when sky-high optimism might actually seem a little bit tone-deaf? What if now is a time for us to lean into our limits instead of pretending that we can avoid them? It would seem now is a good time for us to be doing what we do best. It was a Lutheran that once said, It is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. I said at the beginning that I I found that I might be the type of leader that maybe you would follow into a restaurant if I told you the food was really good and I offered to pay I'm not offering to pay, by the way, I know, I know our uh, dinner time is next. But maybe you've had it happen to you where you have tasted some really good food and it has caused you to wonder, well, what's in it? What's the recipe? I know I'm standing in front of a group of Lutherans with very sophisticated palates, and so you have no doubt been picking up what I've been trying to serve for the past hour plus. But I tried really hard not to name the ingredients by name because I wanted you to see the entire recipe all at once. It seems to me that ours is a moment to identify our number one obsession, to do real good for real people, to build institutional trust, to embrace embodiment, and to face our finitude. It seems to me this is what people are hungering for. And this is the recipe that by God's grace we get to serve. We are not the only ones who are able to serve people any of this. But I am fully convinced Lutherans are the only ones interested in, and capable of, serving all of it. And now seems to be a pretty good time to be doing it. At the risk of treating all of you people as logs by really boosting our website traffic, If you are interested in a summary of the presentation and some ideas for further reading, you can visit goodnewslc.org slash Lutheran Moment. Thank you.